What's behind the science and inventions that impact our daily lives? Pacific Northwest National Laboratory's pods of science are the stories of what happens before the breakthrough, before a technology becomes a household name, before the life-saving drug hits your local pharmacy shelves, before the paper is published. Here's what happens when great minds meet great challenges. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pods of Science. Pods of Science. I'm your host, Nick Hennett, and I'm here today to talk about radio xenon with a world-renowned nuclear physicist. Ted, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Ted Boyer. I am a laboratory fellow at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, and uh, I do research and development on detecting radioactive atoms from nuclear explosions. Ted, thank you so much for joining me today. No problem, Nick. It's uh, my pleasure to be here with you. Radio xenon. Now, that's a word I bet much of our audience has never heard before. What is radio xenon? Well, xenon is an element, just like any other element you may have heard of, like oxygen or nitrogen. It's a gas, and it's kind of like argon or helium, if you've heard of those. They're noble gases. And what that means, it's, it's a kind of gas that doesn't react. It turns out that the radioactive versions of xenon are what we care about, and those are created in different nuclear processes, such as nuclear explosions. Why are you interested in radio xenon? Well, Nick, who wouldn't be, actually? <laughs> uh, when I first started the laboratory, one of my first duties was to come up with a new way to detect nuclear explosions. What my group and I settled on was this signature, which is radioactive xenon. It turns out it wasn't a one or two year type of effort like I thought it was going to be. It turned out to be a multiple year uh, effort and still going on 25 years later. Wow, that's really fascinating. When you go to a party or you know you meet someone and they ask you what you study, what do you tell them? I mean, do you say you study radio xenon? Well, uh, radioactive xenon isn't exactly the most exciting topic for most people. I, I like to tell them I'm a business major or a lawyer or something good like that. But <laughs> ultimately, I end up having parties with a bunch of other scientists. So there is that aspect and they will listen and their eyes won't totally glaze over. <laughs> but to answer your question, I usually tell them I work on trying to detect nuclear explosions, kind of like the ones you would see uh, on CNN after North Korea announces they've conducted a nuclear test and somebody's got to be out there to, to verify whether a nuclear test has really occurred or not. That's really fascinating and interesting. How did you get into this line of work? Well, I went to grad school in the Midwest. I went as an undergrad to the University of Michigan, and then I got a PhD in nuclear physics at Indiana University. It turns out that I was at a conference, and I saw a couple of PNNL people giving presentations at a nuclear physics conference. And it fascinated me. What I wanted to do at the time was environmental cleanup and, and using uh, nuclear physics to make better nuclear detectors. But it turned out when I got to the laboratory, what I really found compelling was working on other issues uh, in national security. There was a lot of uh, really compelling work there, uh, some interesting scientists, and I just got into it. That's great. I can see that. How hard is it to track radio xenon and interpret the findings? Well, it, it's not super easy. I uh, started this when I was a young pup uh, about 25 years ago, and at that time, I really had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I, I didn't know what radioactive xenon was. I didn't appreciate why it was a good signature, but now I do. Mm. And my team and I were able to come up with a process from scratch to collect the xenon and make measurements. And so in a sense, it's a lot easier now than it was, but there's still a lot of challenges, both political and technical challenges that we're dealing with even 25 years later to try to perfect this so it becomes the best kind of signature it can be. 
I can't even imagine. So how do you measure radio xenon? Well, xenon's a trace gas, and, and that means in a room, there would be just a few cc's of xenon in an entire room. And it's mixed with all of the nitrogen, oxygen, and argon, and other things that are in the room. It's, it's mixed well. So the first thing you have to do is find a way to collect it out of the large volume of other components and separate it out. So we do that using a chemical processing technique. And then once we isolate the xenon, we have a specialized nuclear detector that we put the xenon into, and it has a unique signature from the nuclear perspective. And we use what's called beta gamma coincidence technique to separate those isotopes out from backgrounds from other processes. It's fascinating. How sensitive is the system? Well, there's a number of different systems, and I have a number of different analogies that I use. The one that's my favorite is perhaps you're opening a bottle of champagne in Kansas. And there's CO2 and the cork pops, and there's a small amount of CO2 that's released when you open champagne. Now, that's about the same amount of xenon that's created in a smallish nuclear explosion. Now, envision that amount of CO2, or in our case, radioactive xenon, traveling from Kansas to New York City. And so we're detecting about the number of atoms that would be present in that far of a transit. So imagine, in other words, detecting the amount of CO2 from a champagne bottle transported from Kansas to New York City. So it's only a few thousand atoms that we detect typically every day. It's really impressive. But why should people care? We can't always trust bad guys. That's, I guess, kind of the definition of what a bad guy is. You, you can't trust them. Yeah. Somebody needs to know what they're doing, even if they're announcing, pre-announcing what they're doing. For example, North Korea announced that they were conducting a nuclear test. But do we believe them? So somebody has to create equipment and techniques and algorithms to be able to determine what the bad guys are doing. That's why people should care, because somebody needs to verify that these bad guys are doing what they're saying, or in the case they don't say what their intent is, somebody needs to verify that. It provides a global security and a better understanding of what's really going on in the world. While at PL, we don't really do the actual monitoring, we develop the technology uh, for people who do the monitoring. And so we do the research and development, the front end of that problem. It sounds tough. I mean, you've mentioned that uh, you've been doing this for over 20 years. What are the new challenges? There are a lot of them. That's a good, good thing and a bad thing. It's bad in the sense that it's, you know, we would like to have perfected this technique from the very beginning. The reality is, though, it's, it's, it's not that simple, and it's not for the faint of heart. So we can continue to try to improve the situation. One thing that we didn't really understand when the technique was pioneered in the 1990s was there's radioactive xenon in the air from a number of different processes. For example, from nuclear power generation, medical isotope production, and other things also create radioactive xenon. So it creates, a, let's say, a fog of radioactive xenon in the atmosphere. And so now our problem becomes, if there's this other radioactive xenon out there, how do we tell that what we're detecting isn't, in fact, from a peaceful thing such as production of nuclear power? We develop things such as a technology called Stacks, which is actually a stack monitor, uh, where you could put a nuclear detector at the location where radioactive xenon is emitted on a voluntary basis, and we can use that with some sophisticated models to know when that is what we detected versus a nuclear test. What would you say you found to be the most rewarding part of your career in this line of research? Most scientists like challenges, I really do. You could even say that it's, it's kind of a puzzle that we've taken a long time to try to solve. 
And that's compelling. The thing that really gets me going is working on something that I know in my heart's important. That doesn't necessarily mean that everybody understands or cares or knows they should care about it, but we do. For example, things you, you might see on CNN, we know, hey, we worked on that. Uh, after the Japanese nuclear accident, we were involved with the early results of that. We knew that, and not everybody knew we were working on that, but, but it's, it's gratifying to work on issues that really mean something or should mean something. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Have you considered how your research has made a difference in people's everyday lives? Well, yeah, all the time. That's really what inspires me. I can give you uh, a couple of examples. Uh, in 2006, uh, when North Korea conducted its first nuclear test, uh, that was something that uh, people all saw on TV. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and frankly, uh, a lot of people knew about it and were worried about it. In fact, I, I got a call from my mother asking about it, and I had a, a good discussion with her about it. What people didn't know, and my mother didn't know until I told her, was that we were part of a team that was attacking radioactive atoms from that test. Wow. Our technology was used, and so that was verifying that the North Koreans really did conduct a nuclear test like they said they did. And on a different note, in 2011, uh, when there was that horrific nuclear accident in Japan at the Fukushima nuclear plant, yes, we, we were the first people in Richland, in fact, to detect radioactive uh, xenon atoms coming to the continental U.S. We're on the West Coast of the U.S. And so we were the very first people to detect radioactive debris from that accident. So it was horrific. And it was at the same time exciting for us to be involved with something real and affecting people. What was that call like uh, with your mother? The first part of the discussion, my mother asked me about the aliens and where they were. And she knew that I couldn't tell her about the aliens. But then we pivoted <laughs> to, to North Korea and uh, she wanted to know what it meant. And she suspected we might be involved with that. And I uh, actually told her, yeah, we were. This has been so fun. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for making space for us to explain some of the details about this really exciting and important research. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to talk to you and anybody else who will listen. It's just something that's been really great for me to do over the years, and I've been very lucky. Well, that is going to do it for this edition. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time for another episode of Pods of Science. 